0: Good morning. Everybody good today? Beautiful weekend we've had and uh, today you are in for a very very special treat. Uh, My friend and mentor Chuck McAllister is here uh, to preach and to share the word of God and uh, we were actually on vacation and came back uh, this morning because Chuck was preaching and and because we were camping and, and so I told my kids we were done and we need to go back and hear Chuck. Because I can only handle so much camping. Uh, I think God gave us houses for a reason <laughs> and, and today uh, the first service uh, Chuck did an amazing job and there were some amazing things happening in people's lives and there was some real uh, warfare I believe happening and uh, today I want us to begin and pray uh, together and I want us to pray that the Lord would clear our hearts and clear our minds and 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 draw us into his presence And that he would do everything that he wants to do in each and every one of the lives of everybody in all of our environments today. And everybody under the sound and and the uh, video of this ministry this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray today in this place that you, Jesus, would be lifted up. And as we lift you up, you would draw men and women and boys and girls unto yourself. Father, I pray against anything that would uh, take our attention away from you and from your word and all that you want to share and all the truth that you have to deposit in our hearts today. May we be attuned and focused. And may our spirits bear witness with the Holy Spirit of God in this room today uh, that Jesus is alive and he sits on the throne and there is truth from his word today that we are to receive. In Jesus' name we pray and together we all say amen. Put your hands together and welcome Chuck McAllister this morning.
1: Love you, brother. You know, I I told Alex right before the first service, I said, this is really weird because when you work for me, I used to assign him texts to preach on for me on Sunday now he's assigning me texts so uh, anyway we're, we're, we're gonna make the adjustment but we're honored to be here we appreciate it my wife Janice is here I hope uh, if you're here in this location you'll get a chance to meet her uh, but we have some materials that are available both here and at Midtown and if you happen to be watching by internet you can also access these at promiseofhope.org but uh, just to let you know a little bit of what we've got We've got a book called Gifted for Life's Journey that we've written that's on how you can find your purpose and your gift set and how God wants to use you. It's based on Romans 12. And then we have a book we've written called Choosing Your Way to a Great Marriage. And it it basically revolves around the 21 choices that any of us can make at any time in our marriage. It's a devotional book that wives and husbands do together in the evenings uh, or whenever you choose to do them. And uh, those 21 choices will help you emerge with a stronger marriage. It's material that we wrote uh, through a marriage class that my wife and I actually taught. Then uh, we also have our, my latest book is called Exposed. It's a study of Isaiah 5 and 6. Somebody asked me this morning if I've ever read the book The Harbinger. This was written as a companion book for The Harbinger. It's uh, a study of what happens to a country or a nation of people as they accelerate their departure from God. And there are four stages according to scripture um, that follow the pattern of Israel and Judah. And America is now following that pattern. And By the way, do you know what moves a nation into the third stage of exposure or judgment? It's when God allows that nation to be attacked by a foreign power. What happened to us on 9 For the first time in our history, we were attacked by a foreign power. Do you know what happens when a nation moves into stage four? It's annihilation. And I think as you read this, you'll get an understanding of where we are as a nation and as a people. Also... Um, We have the book Adventures in God's Country. is a a compilation of devotional uh, writings and stories of our hunting show. We did a hunting show for 16 years called Adventure Bound Outdoors. It was the number one uh, program on the Hunting Channel. Won four national awards. And this is a compilation of those stories. This book is unique. It's patented and copyrighted. It's completely waterproof. Every page is waterproof. You can throw it in the mud and wash it off with a, a power washer and it'll still keep functioning. And here is my favorite project that's close to my heart, though. We also have waterproof Bibles. These Bibles uh, are every page is waterproof. We have a special highlighter. You can highlight in it. It's a dry highlighter. But uh, we have a program that we're engaged in doing with Operation Soldier Care. Um, And I'm not making this as a political statement, but I want you to understand that distribution of Bibles to our soldiers has been greatly restricted by the current administration. We get around that by allowing folks to buy one of these Bibles, and then we give you the name and address of the person who's president of Operation Soldier Care out of First Baptist Naples, Florida, where they have a ministry, that they do this in partnership with us. You'll take your Bible and a letter that you write to a soldier. You'll send it to Operation Soldier Care. They will put together a customized care package in your name, send it to the front lines, then send you the name and address of the soldier that they sent it to, and then you can form a pen pal relationship with them. We sent over 500 of those out last year, and our goal is to send 1,000 of them out this year to get them in the hands of soldiers. And we've got some really remarkable stories of guys whose lives were touched. Many of our guys who are serving on the front lines don't have family. And I've got some pictures that will just tear your heart out of guys who've gotten uh, pictures drawn by preschool children from the family that bought their Bible, and it's stuck up on the sand uh, bag walls of their huts in the Kandahar province of Afghanistan, stuck up with a bullet, because it was the only thing they had to stick the picture up with. So we would just ask you to pray about that and about your participation in it, and Just be a part of making a difference in a guy's life. By the way, do you know what the number one item requested in a care package sent to our troops is? Double stuffed Oreo cookies. (laughs) So, that tells you how to take care of our guys. Well, this morning, in conjunction with our series, This is War, we want to talk about rising above your past. And I want to I want to start out with the time of prayer because like your pastor said, you could sense the warfare in the first service. It was powerful. And we we saw some significant things happen. And I believe Satan does not like what this church is doing. I don't believe Satan is very excited about the fact that you're getting ready to make inroads into Chicago. And your pastor will tell you more about that later. When a church gets serious about reaching its community and its nation and its world, get ready, Satan calls out his big guns. And so when that happens, all you've got to do is tell Daddy. Because Daddy can handle Satan. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord and tell Daddy. Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. Lord, I just I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to... Be engaged in making a difference for your kingdom. And I want to pray right now that you'd send your angels to just fill this place. And that, Lord, you would be in control of every word that is spoken here, everything that is said, everything that is done, and that your spirit would reign supreme and would fall with power here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being there for us and for reaching out to us. Most of all, thank you that we're privileged to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed how children can stretch your boundaries? You know, they, they have a, a great way of doing that. And we're watching as our three granddaughters grow up, and our son, who we raise, gets everything he ever deserved for all the heartache he caused us when he was growing up. And there are moments when Janice and I just get alone, and we just celebrate. It's just a wonderful experience. Um, not too long ago, we were visiting our son who planted a church in Columbus, Ohio. And his three daughters and, his, of course, his wife. And our son decided that we needed a lecture. Sometimes, you know, kids do that to their parents. And he said, now listen, I recognize, Dad, that our youngest daughter, Bray, is extremely sharp-witted. And you guys have been laughing at her. And so you're kind of causing her to be worse. So you need to, you need to curtail that a little bit. So I'm going, thank you, God. Oh, this is great. He's getting everything he ever deserved. This is wonderful. So anyway, that evening, we're, you know, in the girls' bedrooms. Janice is lying down with the girls, and we're just kind of hanging out. It's bedtime. Everybody's settling in. And the the middle daughter, Maddie, had not eaten very well. She had a little bit of an upset stomach. And so our son, Chris, walks in, and he says, Maddie, you didn't eat very much. Uh, Would you like like a half a banana before you go to bed? She said, Daddy, that would be nice. And then Bray, the sharp-witted one, the youngest one, speaks up and says, well, Daddy, I want a half a banana too. He said, now, Bray, you ate a really good supper. You don't need a half a banana. Immediately she looked back at him and said, what kind of man won't give his daughter a half a banana? (laughs) (laughs) And then immediately also said, it's not like I asked for a cookie or anything. Well, I am in the floor. You know, I've gotten my lecture. I'm not supposed to laugh. Our son Chris, immediately, you can see his eyes widen. He turns, walks out into the hallway, and the laughter fills the hall. And I'm going, yes, this is so good. This is so great. But, you know, as much as as children stretch us and challenge us, It's important for us to understand that we also have an enemy who doesn't just want to stretch us and challenge us, he wants to destroy us. Satan has a plan to destroy your life, just as God has a plan to bless you. And you know that Satan's favorite tool many times in trying to get a foothold into your life is your past. In order to defeat him in this war that we're involved in, it's important, it's crucial, it's, it's, it's mandatory that you rise above your past. You know, for some of us, I mean, we all have a past. Paul had a past. He wrote most of the New Testament. But prior to his encounter with Jesus, he killed Christians. Do you know that even Jesus had a past? When he chose to enter time and live among us, No doubt there were moments when he remembered his past in the beautiful dance of the Trinity. The relationship that they shared. And how in perfect relationship, everything was shared. And how now he had to live among us without that capacity of perfect relationship. We all have a past. My wife Janice is in many ways my hero. She has risen above an extremely difficult past. Her mother and father both were alcoholics. And even her mother was further addicted to prescription medication. Janice is the only one of her entire family, of all of her siblings, that is not addicted to a substance. It is a powerful picture of the grace of our God. The grace he extends to us to rise above our past. My wife and I grew up in the deep south, South Carolina, in the pre civil rights days. And so we carry somewhat of a past. I remember as a boy walking into the doctor's office, and there were two waiting rooms. One said colored, and one said white. I remember walking into a restaurant and sitting down at a restaurant to eat a meal and African-American people were not allowed to come and sit in that restaurant and eat. There was a back window. They would have to come to the back window to get their food to go sit under a tree and eat it. I can remember as a boy in the fifth grade, our teacher, Ms. Taylor, standing up in front of us and giving us lessons. We'd start every day out with a devotional, a pledge of allegiance to the flag. We would sing, this is my father's world. I can still sing it. This is my fault. Never mind. And remember it to this day. Then we would get about a 10-minute lecture on why we needed to study hard because if we didn't, we would become the slaves to the African-Americans. Except she didn't use the term African-American. She used another term. That was my past. I can remember in history studying the Civil War. It wasn't called the Civil War. It was called the War of Northern Aggression. That was my past. My past was exploded in 1965. October of that year, I gave my heart to Christ. I remember sitting down with a deacon who led us in a Bible study that told us that African-American people could not come into a relationship with Jesus because they did not have a soul. And I remember when I accepted Christ as my Savior in that month in October, It was in that same time frame that I had just gone into the 7th grade. And it was that year that our school was integrated for the first time with one African-American student. Her name was Cheryl Lynn. Never forget it as long as I live. She showed up the first day of school, and I remember the parking lot was crowded with pickup trucks and fathers sitting on the hoods of their pickup trucks with their shotguns in hand. It was like a war zone. I watched Sherilyn that first day as she was kicked and tripped and knocked down, books knocked out of her hand, treated horribly. And that continued day day after day after day after day after day after day. But I never saw her retaliate. I never saw her get angry. I never saw her yell at anyone. I never saw her seek to get even. You know what she did? She simply aced every test and blew the curve in the class. That's how she handled it. Finally, I had seen about as much of this as I could handle. And one day when she was sitting all alone in the cafeteria, I walked over to her, didn't sit down with her, that was completely forbidden. But I walked over to her and I said, Cherilyn, I need to ask you a question. And she said, what is it? I said, I've watched you get kicked and tripped and knocked down and everything else happened to you. I've never seen you retaliate, never seen you get angry, never seen you seek to get even. Why? Her answer exploded the paradigm of the culture in which I had been growing. Uh, her answer exploded my world. Because she looked at me and she said, because that's not what Jesus would have me do. I'm commanded to love those who hurt me. At that moment, I began to rise above my past. I began to recognize that African American people, Native American people, people who are of different skin hue and different background or culture from us, are equal to us. Let me tell you what a great sense of humor God has. You know who our partner is in our ministry now? It's an individual who has become one of my best friends. His name is Curtis Owens. Curtis is one of the smartest men I've ever met. Curtis is an African American, former radical black Muslim. God takes an African-American former black Muslim and a redneck and puts them together. (laughs) Only God can do that because only God can raise you above your past. Now, some of you may have been on the receiving end of that prejudice as a Native American, as an African American. Some of you may have been on the receiving end of some other type of prejudice. Maybe there's something in your past that you've allowed to define you. You don't understand I've had an abortion. You don't understand what I've done or where I've been or what I've experienced You don't understand the things that I've been through or done. No, I don't, but our God does, and our God is so powerful. He is so magnificent. He can take the worst of things that have happened. He can take the worst of backgrounds that you may have experienced, and he can raise you above your past to give you a wonderful future. We want to talk this morning in this business of warfare, especially spiritual warfare, what it means to rise above your past. And I want you to notice with me, we'll be in Joshua chapter 8, in Joshua chapter 8, and I want to talk about there are four choices that you and I need to make to rise above our past, to move forward with the plan that God has for our lives, what God wants to do with us. Choice number one, let's look at it together, is decide who you are. Decide who you are. Now, notice in verse 1, let me set the stage for you. The children of Israel have just tr- experienced an awful defeated AI. And the Lord knew that that defeated AI was, in fact, going to become a defining factor in their lives. In fact, it did. And he needed to move in their lives to give them an opportunity to rise above it. Every single one of us have had defining factors or defining moments, maybe tragedies or even failures, sins, mistakes, or even successes that have defined who we are or we have allowed to define who we are. And God comes into the present of the children of Israel and basically says, don't let that define your life. He says in verse 1, then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Do you know what God was saying to Joshua and to the people of, of Israel? He was saying this, you're not going to let the failure that you've experienced define who you are. You're going to decide who you are based on what I'm going to do in your life. Based on how I'm going to deal with you, based on what happens as we move forward. The Lord is saying, I will set your past right. You see, the most important thing you can do is let your identity be defined by your relationship with the Father, not by what you've experienced. Several years ago, I was speaking at a church in uh, Stuttgart, Arkansas, and uh, in that particular church, we had uh, had a great experience and a great opportunity. We, I had shared the gospel, and in the process of uh, sharing the gospel, we had uh, actually had a young man accept Christ. We had about 20 accept Christ that day. And after it was over, I was standing at the front, and this, this young man walks up to me. He told me he was about 16 years old, and I asked him, did you get some things settled in your life today? He said, yes. And then he started crying. He said, yes, I accepted Christ today, but I'm very sad. I said, you're sad. How are you sad? He said, well, you talked about in your presentation going hunting with your dad and your granddad. And and he said, my dad deserted us when I was five months old and left me and my mom all by ourselves. And I want to go hunting so bad, but I don't have a dad. And I, I don't have a granddad to take me hunting. And my mama doesn't know how. I'm just sad. All of a sudden, there was an older gentleman standing off to our left who I could tell was listening, probably a fellow late 70s, early 80s, and he just rudely stepped right in between me and that boy. He didn't say, excuse me. He didn't say, pardon me. He didn't say anything. He just stepped right in between us. He put his hands up on that boy's shoulders. He looked him square in the eye, and he said, son, I'm your hunting daddy. All of a sudden, I realized I was on holy ground. Man, I took three steps back, and he looked at that boy, and he said, Son, I'm going to pick you up in the morning at 8 o'clock. I'm going to take you to the hunter education course to get your hunter education card, and then I'm going to take you hunting. And the boy said, But I don't have any guns. He said, Boy, I got enough guns for you, me, and half the world. That's not a problem. (laughs) And he said, By the way, if I'm going to be your hunting daddy, I'm also going to be your church daddy. He said, I hope you like McDonald's because I'm going to pick you up 8 o'clock Sunday morning. We're going to go to McDonald's and have breakfast. And then you're going to sit in church with me. As Janice and I drove out of the parking lot of that church, I looked up in my rearview mirror. And there was an 80-something-year-old man and a 16-year-old boy hugging each other. And both of them crying on each other's shoulders. About a year after that, I was speaking in Stuttgart at a citywide crusade and I told that story because it was something that happened there and stepped off the stage and this lady came walking up to me crying and she said, his name is Mike. I said, excuse me, the 16-year-old boy, his name is Mike. I'm the youth director of the church. Just wanted you to know that Mike is now the leader of our youth group and he and that old man who had just lost his wife before he met Mike sit together on the second row of the church every Sunday. You see, Mike was moving toward letting his life be defined by the tragedy he experienced as a baby. And he had it was through no fault of his own. It was through nothing that he had done. His life was going to be defined by that one event. But God sent an angel, an 80-something-year-old man, to step into that boy's life and to give that boy the awareness that he did not have to be defined by a father who deserted him because he had a heavenly father who loved him cared about him. Folks, I can't even begin to explain what some of you may have been through in your lives. What some of you may have experienced. The tragedy, the pain, the hurt. Some of it through no fault of your own. Do not let that define who you are. Decide who you are in your relationship with the Father. Not because of that tragedy. Choice number two. Choice number one, decide who you are. Choice number two, deal with your past. Choice number two, deal with your past. This is so important, so vital, I can't even begin to tell you how important it is. But I want you to notice that God actually has a plan for the children of Israel to follow in order to be able to deal with their past. Look in verse 2 of Joshua 8. It says... You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. Now, God has a plan for Israel, and this plan is how they can deal with their past without letting that past define who they are. But in order for them to deal with their past, they've got to do exactly what God said. This city has already kicked their butt once. It's already whipped them one time. And if they're going to rise beyond that, get above that, get get ahead of that, then they have to follow exactly what God says. And God gives them a brilliant strategy for how to defeat not only Ai, but also Bethel. In fact, when I was in the army, we studied this battle as an example of brilliant strategy. Here's what Joshua was told by God to do. Get 5,000 men, set an ambush between Ai and Bethel. As soon as those men get in place, Joshua is to attack the city. He takes the rest of the army, he attacks the city. Then, as soon as the city retaliates, he turns and retreats. As he begins to retreat and run, the king of Ai, the men of Ai, the men of Bethel will come and pursue him and attack him. The ambush, which is set on the other side, as soon as the city's empty of their soldiers, then moves into the city and sets the city on fire. When Joshua saw the smoke rising above Ai, knowing that the city had been set on fire, he was to stop his retreat, raise his javelin. That was the sign that his army was to stop and turn and attack the army of Ai. Then the men who were inside the city burning it would come outside the city and they would catch the army of Ai and Bethel in a pincer movement, in a vice grip, and defeat them. It's God's plan, perfect plan. Joshua and his men implemented the plan perfectly, doing exactly what God would have them do to deal with their past. In fact, look in verse 24. It says, when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed all those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. I'll come back to that in a minute. You said they killed women? Yes, they killed women. I'll come back and explain it in just a moment. Then it says, For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry all for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. Ai was no more. It was obliterated by the army of the children of Israel. God had a specific plan for them to deal with their past. They followed God's plan, and they conquered the very thing that had been defining who they were because they dealt with their past God's way. You know, each one of us are going to be faced with the challenge of dealing with our past in some way. And the choice is this. Do you do it your way or do you do it God's way? Do you do it by your preference? Or is doing what God wants you to do more important than your preference? That's the basic decision that you're facing here. Um, I confessed this in the first service. I might as well confess it in this one. I told the first service that had your pastor known this, he probably would not have asked me to speak. Because there's some things about me he does not know. Nor has he discovered since... We've not been in a close, 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 close relationship. I am a fairly well a rugged man. I have a reputation for being a hunter. I like to burp and scratch and watch football games and do the kind of things that men like to do. And yet I have a dark side. And I might as well just confess it because I'm just going to come clear with it. It's not something I like. It's not something that I like to do. It's not something that is my preference. My preference is to burp and scratch and watch football and hunting, game, and hunting shows. But on occasion, I have been known to participate in tea parties. I'm not talking about the political kind. I'm talking about the sit in a chair that's too small... Hold the cup just right and stick your pinky out, kind. It's shocking, isn't it? I know. I know. But I'm dealing with it. I really am. That's not the worst of it. I have been known to participate in tea parties. I don't even know if I should say it, but I will. Wearing a tutu. (laughs) I know, it's shocking. The problem is I can't find a tutu big enough So I usually participate in these tea parties wearing a tutu on each leg. (laughs) I know. You're going to have to spend the rest of the day getting that picture out of your mind. But that's not all. Not only do I spend some time participating in tea parties wearing a tutu on each leg, I have even on occasion been known to participate in tea parties wearing a tutu on each leg and a tiara. I don't like it. I mean, it's not my preference. I much prefer burping and scratching and watching football. But on occasion, if one of my granddaughters crawls up in my lap and puts their little arm around my neck and say, Papa, will you have a tea party with us? Guess what Papa does? Papa has a tea party. I am told that the next step in this regression that I'm going through is I will get my fingernails and toenails painted. I'm preparing myself. But you know, why would I do something like that? I would do something like that because I love my granddaughters more than I love my preference. When you get to the point in your life that you love the Lord, your relationship with Him doing what he has asked you to do to deal with your past more than you love your preference, get ready, God's going to move in your life. God's going to do some dramatic things in your life. You see, the first thing and the first choice that we have to make if we're going to rise above our past to follow what God wants us to do is we have to decide who we are in relationship with him, not our past. Then we have to deal with our past, but not deal with our past according to what we prefer. Deal with our past doing what he has told us to do. That's what the children of Israel did, and they won a great victory over Ai. But it it doesn't end there because there's a third choice that you have to make as well. And choice number three is once you have decided who you are in relationship with the Father, once you have dealt with your past by not implementing your preference but by implementing His will, then you must disclose everything. Nothing hidden. Nothing held back. You must be willing to let him have access to every part of who you are. You must be willing to disclose every single thing. In fact, I want you to look with me in verse 28. It says in verse 28, So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. You know what the name Ai means in the original language? It means a heap. And so basically what we're talking about here is the children of Israel were facing this this heap of trouble from their past named Ai. But God moved in. He directed Joshua what to do. Joshua dealt with their past and left it not a heap of trouble, but a desolate heap. It has been completely destroyed. There is nothing left so that Israel can get on with living the purpose that God has for them to live. No matter what your past is, no matter what heap of trouble it has caused you, I can assure you that our God is greater than what you have gone through or what you're using to define yourself. In fact, notice what happens in verse 29. It says, he hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree, throw it down at the entrance of the city gate, and they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. It's a powerful picture. king of Ai, the, 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 the outpost of Ai has been completely defeated. The king of Ai was hung on a tree. His body was then taken down. It was laid at the gate of the city. And a heap of rocks was put over it. This powerful picture is telling us something. In order to understand it, you need to understand the background to Ai, Bethel, Jericho, and all these places. These were not cities as we know cities. These were military outposts. And as military outposts, it was primarily a place where soldiers were stationed. But it's also important that you understand the character of these people. These people worshipped a god named Baal and a goddess named Anath. Baal and Anath would regularly engage in sexual relations. The people believed that the semen of Baal was the rain that would fall and fertilize their crops. They believed it was their responsibility. Every time they engaged in sexual relations, it would cause Baal and Anath to engage in sexual relations. So it was their responsibility to continually engage in sexual relations. And so there were always prostitutes near the idols of Baal and Anath and everyone was expected to regularly perform with those prostitutes. But they also worshipped another god. A god by the name of Moloch. Moloch basically was an idol made of metal and they would take that idol and they would put it in a flaming fire until the idol became white searing hot it had a hollowed out abdomen. Whenever sexual relations were engaged in by these Canaanites to worship Baal and anath because they had no means of birth control, there were babies being born all the time. But isn't it interesting that the scripture says when Joshua marched on Ai, he killed the men and women. It says nothing about children. Do you know why it says nothing about children? Because there were no children in that city or that outpost. Because as soon as a child was born, that that baby would be taken immediately from its birth and then it would be taken over to the idol of Molech and it would be thrown into the empty, searing, white, metal abdomen of Molech where it would be seared to death. That was what these people were doing. God began dealing with the Canaanites 430 years prior to this event. Some of the Canaanites responded. I'm sure your pastor told you about Rahab at Jericho. Rahab was a prostitute. What was her role? She was one of the prostitutes of Baal and Anah. No doubt she had had many children who had been thrown into the searing white abdomen of Molech. And yet God forgave her and embraced her and received her. Have you ever heard about a saline abortion? Do you know what a saline abortion does? It burns the baby to death in the womb. And, and we try to claim moral superiority over the Canaanites. Come on, really. And you say, "But you're making me feel bad. I had an abortion. Rahab had done that kind of thing many times, but she found God's grace. And there were a few others who found God's grace. Those who were wiped out that day by Joshua in the field of battle were basically those who said to God, God, I'll just, I don't want you. They had already heard of God. They had heard of what he was doing. For 430 years, he had been dealing with them. This was God's judgment on a group of people who were so horrible. And yet they refused his offer of grace. Sometimes I look at America and I wonder, why aren't we responding to his grace? Why aren't we trusting him? Joshua knew he was doing what God had directed him to do. And he knew that everything had to be completely disclosed. The king of Ai was taken out. The original text indicates he was stripped naked and hung on a tree for all to see. Everything exposed powerful picture when you consider what it represents do you know what that wicked wicked man, probably one of the most wicked men who ever lived, the king of Ai worse than Hitler, Stalin, Jeffrey Dauber and Charles Manson all rolled into one do you know what he represents hanging naked on that tree he represents Jesus Christ hanging naked on a cross whoa, how could that be I mean, Jesus, I mean, but my goodness, Jesus was God's son. But my friend on the cross, he became as wicked as the king of Ai for you and me because all of the sins of all of the Canaanites and all of the sins that have defined my past and your past and everybody's past were suddenly heaped on Jesus for us, and he was completely exposed for me. And he took my sin, my past, to the grave for me. Yes, it's a powerful, powerful picture. The cross is what delivers us from the heap of our past. But there has to be complete complete disclosure and exposure. I had the privilege of serving in the army and one of my jobs was I was stationed in Korea in the 2nd Infantry Division. Got to talk to a fellow after the first service who had also been stationed there same place I was. And I remember specifically being stationed there. It was, uh, if you've ever seen the opening, of the old television program, MASH, where the helicopter comes around in front of the mountain, you could walk outside the Quonset hut where I slept and you could see that mountain. But our particular base had a very high concentration of prostitutes that lived in the village outside the base. In fact, Playboy came in, did a survey, and said we had the highest concentration of prostitutes per capita of any place in the world. Now remember, walking off the base, you'd immediately be surrounded by a covey of prostitutes and the only English they would know is $1 GI, anything you want, $1, $1, $1. Take a 17-year-old boy and you infuse him into that environment and it could be very confusing for some of them. As an officer, it was my responsibility to train those boys in maintaining their morality in the midst of all that. I told the missionary that my wife was working for down in Seoul that I needed something to be able to say to these guys, these prostitutes. I needed something to be able to say to them to let them know that this was not okay with me. So being limited in, in intelligence, there were only about three sentences in Korean that I could learn. But I learned them. And I said them so much over the years that it just became a part of me. It's not speaking in tongues. That's Korean. You know what it means? God loves you. Believe in Jesus and go to church. That's all I could get out. I got some of the funniest looks from some of those prostitutes that you could ever imagine. But whenever I would walk off the base and I would say that, something began to happen. I became known as the Jesus man. And so it got to where they really wouldn't bother me much. And whenever we could, we would kind of try to meet their needs and help take care of them. One night, I was the officer of the guard, and I was walking through our village, had my sidearm on, when all of a sudden, out of the shadows, there stepped a young lady, and in one motion, she took off her blouse and stood there completely exposed from the waist up. And immediately, she started, $1 GI, anything you want, $1, $1. This girl was so young, she had not even begun to develop. But as I looked it up at her upper torso, it was covered with chancroids. Chancroids are the sores that erupt from the skin from someone who has been infected with syphilis. Tears came to my eyes. I can't tell you what seeing that young girl like that did for me as I looked at her completely exposed. And I recited my Korean. And immediately her eyes widened and she said, Jesus man. And I said, yes. I motioned and asked her if she was hungry. She nodded her head. I remember reaching my wallet. I had $30 in my wallet. I took all $30 out and I opened her little hand. And I put the $30 in it and I folded her hand over it realizing that I couldn't speak her language she couldn't speak my language but she had been so abused and, and misused and passed around. And all of a sudden as I helped her put her blouse back on she became a little girl all over again. She laid her head on my shoulder and she wet my shoulder with her tears. She reached up she kissed me on the cheek, one of the sweetest little kisses I've ever had, and she disappeared into the shadows. And I never saw her again. That could be bad, it could be good, because I used to watch the covey of prostitutes that would gather outside our boat, our, our fort, and she had previously always been among them, but she never was among them again. And I'd like to think that someday. When I'm standing in the halls of heaven, a beautiful Korean young lady is going to walk up to me and say, Jesus man, can I give you a kiss? And I'm going to get to embrace a young lady who was set free from her past because she met Jesus. My friend, whatever you choose to withhold, whatever you refuse to expose... Satan will use as a tool to destroy you. That's why complete exposure is necessary. And sometimes what we expose when we expose ourselves is embarrassing. When people see the truth about us. But I want to tell you this. No matter who you are. No matter what you've done. No matter where you've been. Your God loves you so much. That when you do expose what Satan is trying to use to defeat you, God will use it for your good and his glory. What will it take to rise above your past? Choice number one, decide who you are. Define in your relationship with the Father, not your past. Choice number two, deal with your past, doing what the Father says. Choice number three, disclose everything. Just as everything about Ai was disclosed by Joshua, you make the choice to disclose everything about yourself. Choice number four, and we're done. Determine your future. Joshua does something interesting now with the children of Israel. He marches them into a great valley, a two-mile-wide valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. In the middle, he builds an altar, just as God had directed him to do. And then he also places the tabernacle in the middle. Half the people on the sloping side of Mount Ebal. Half the people on the sloping side of Mount Gerizim. And there's a a reason why they used that amphitheater setting. Because it gave everybody a clear view of the tabernacle, which represented God's presence. And then Joshua did some things that are very important. Look at verse 30. It says that he built an altar... As Moses, the servant of the Lord, verse 31, had commanded, had commanded the Israelites, and he built it out of an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. Now, why that? Because this is a work of God. When you start looking at your future and what you need to do in the future, there is nothing that you can do to improve on it. That's why these stones are uncut. No tool had touched these stones. The work God wants to do in your life is not something that is to be complemented by your work. It is something that is to be received. And so God begins to work through Joshua to give him the three pillars that are necessary on which to build your future. And the first one is God's peace. This is a work of God. This is not your work. This is what God does for you. And notice he built an altar and then he, he had them do a burnt offering. That burnt offering was the place of sacrifice. It was a place of a horrible death of, of, of blood. It represented the cross. But then on top of that, they not only gave the burnt offering, they gave the fellowship offering. Literally, that's the peace offering. You know what he's saying? is when, Je- when you meet Jesus at the place of the cross, where everything about you is exposed, where you experience his sacrifice and him entering into your heart, then you get to experience the peace of God. See, so say, how can I ever have peace? You don't know what I've done. You remember the story I told you the last time I was here about the soldier named Joshua. And Joshua broke down while we were interviewing him for our television program. And he said, no, God wants me because God doesn't know what I've done in Afghanistan. And I looked at him and I said, but God does know what you've done. And you think you lost your soul in Afghanistan. But the Bible says in Psalm 23 that he restores your soul. In Joshua, you can meet God. He got on his knees right there and he gave his heart to Christ. And for the first time in his life, he had peace, the peace of God. I know it took because this past summer I got a letter from Joshua, or a call actually from Joshua. Uh, from uh, Yeah, his name is Joshua from Joshua. And he said, uh, my wife just passed away of stage 4 breast cancer. Left me with three small children. But Brother Chuck, I just wanted you to know we're going to be okay because Jesus is in control. You see, Joshua refused to be defined by that tragedy because he was letting Jesus define who he was because he had God's peace in his life. I'm speaking to some people this morning. You need God's peace, and Satan is doing everything he can in the context of this situation to get you not to listen and not to respond because he doesn't want you to have the peace of God. But not only that, as you determine your future, not only do you need the peace of God, but you also... Need the purpose of God. Look at verse 32. It says, There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. In other words, Joshua was writing God's word in stone, and that's what you have to decide to do. You have to decide, not only do I have God's peace because he's helped me deal with that which I needed to deal with that I could not deal with, but now I'm going to live the purpose of God. I'm going to commit myself to doing and being what he wants me to do and be, and I'm going to live that purpose out, and I'm going to write that in stone in my life. Nothing is going to keep me from doing that. To determine your future, you need the peace of God. You need the purpose of God. And most importantly of all, and finally, you need the presence of God. In verse 33, the scripture tells us that all Israel, in fact, notice how it says it. I love this. It says in verse 33, all Israel, aliens and citizens alike were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant. Who are the aliens? That was, those were the people out of Jericho and Ai and those places who had responded to God's offer of grace. Who were saying yes? They wanted God's presence in their lives. These people are now on either side of Mount of, of the Tabernacle on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They're watching this this tabernacle for themselves. They're getting their own view of God's presence because it is a decision you must make. Your mama can't make it for you. Your daddy can't make it for you. Your wife can't make it for you. Your husband can't make it for you. Your children can't make it for you. It's your decision as to whether or not you want to see the presence of God in your life. Back several years ago, I was going through boot camp. And uh, it was not a pleasant experience. I was in Fort Bragg in the middle of the summer in July. It was hot and humid. The mosquitoes were the size of little dogs. And it was just... Not fun at all, and I didn't like it. And about two weeks into it one day, this Jeep pulls out and yells, Cadet McAllister, over here. So I walked over there. He said, get in. I said, okay. So I got in. So we headed out to the medical facility there at the headquarters at Fort Bragg. I walked in. They said, look, we've been looking at your knee. There's a problem with your knee. It hasn't healed right. I hurt my knee as a boy. I was playing tackle football on a concrete driveway. That's how intelligent I am. And... uh, I'd knocked my kneecap out of joint, and it didn't heal just right. And they said, we need you to sign this waiver so that we will not be held responsible if you should hurt your knee while you're going through boot camp. And I said, well, what happens if I don't sign your waiver? Now, understand, I was going through college on an ROTC scholarship. They'd already paid for three years. And they said, well, we're just going to send you home. I said, what happens to the three years you've already paid for? They said, well, we'll just forgive it. I said, well, I ain't signing your waiver. They said, no, really, I'm, I'm serious, you have to sign it. I said, I'm not signing it. They said, okay, then you're out. I said, well, praise God. What do I do? They said, well, just leave. I said, good. So they took me over the barracks. I got my duffel bag. I'm stuck in, stuffing my stuff in the duffel bag. I'm just having the best old time. And in walked Sergeant Jefferson. Sergeant Jefferson was our drill instructor. He was about eight foot nine. He weighed about 930 pounds. <laughs> All you could see was teeth when he smiled. He was the meanest man God ever put on the face of this earth. He walked up to me and he said, McAllister, he said, I just got one thing to say to you. Winners don't quit and quitters don't win. Didn't affect me a bit. I just kept putting my stuff in my duffel bag. So and I headed out, headed out of those barracks, went out to the parking lot, threw my duffel bag in the back of my little Mustang, and I headed down the road to South Carolina to my parents' house where my wife was staying. Parked in the driveway, walked in the door. I said, baby, I'm home. She comes walking out the back of the house. She said, what are you doing here? I said, I got the most remarkable thing. God has moved. She said, what are you talking about? I said, God has delivered me. I don't have to go back to the swamps and mosquitoes. God's taking care of me. She said, what are you talking about? So I explained the story to her. She said, you get in that car and you drive back up there and you sign their waiver. I said, baby, don't you love me? (laughs) She said, yes, I love you. I said, don't you want to be with me? She said, yes, I want to be with you. She said, but I don't want to live the rest of my life with you, you wondering whether you would have made it or not. Now, go get your butt in the car and drive up there and tell them you'll sign their waiver. So guess what I did? I mean, within five hours, I'm back with the dog-sized mosquitoes again. But you know what? My wife knew something. She knew that that would forever be a speed bump in my past that I'd have to deal with. If I didn't face it and deal with it. And let God have the control of it. You see, if you want to determine your future, the most important thing you can do is, first of all, experience the peace of God as you expose everything to Him and let Him show you that you are not defined by your past. That completely takes that tool away from Satan. Then you experience the purpose of God as you become to realize that God has a purpose for you no matter what you've done, where you've been, or what you've experienced. Then you experience the presence of God as He feels you and as He guides you and shows you each step of the way what to do. You see, traveling around the country, I encounter lots of people who've never experienced the presence of God. Oh, they get involved in church. They try to straighten their lives out. They try to follow a moral code or they try to do this or they try to do that. But they never reach a point of saying, yes, Jesus I want you in my life, I want you in my heart, and I surrender to you right now. You know, it's a little like this. Let's say for just a moment that uh, you get sick one day. You don't really understand what's happened to you, but you just know you're sick. You're in bed and you can't hardly get out. You have a friend who's a doctor and he comes by to check on you one day. And he looks up your nose and down your throat and in your ears, takes a little blood. And he says, I'll run some tests next day he comes back and you can tell by the look on his face that something is terribly wrong you say doc now tell me the truth what is it he hems and hauls around a little bit and then he finally breaks down and he says you're gonna die you have a terminal disease you're so shocked you don't know what to say you look at him and you say but doc you gotta you, you can't just dump this on me you've got to tell me something that i can do you you're my only hope. You've got to help me hope here. You've got to give me some hope. You've got to help me know how to how to move beyond this. Your friend the doctor mumbles a few words and he turns and he walks out of the, out of your bedroom. And he's gone. One day goes by, two days, three days, four days, five days. A week. And all of a sudden, your door of your bedroom bursts open and in walks your friend the doctor. His hair is all disheveled. His Shirt's tattered and torn and covered with blood. His cheeks are filthy, but you can see the tracks where the tears have flowed down them. You look in his hand, there's a clear bottle with a clear liquid in it, and he's trembling. You look at your friend, the doc, and you say, Doc, what happened to you? This is awful. And he said, well, last time when I was here and I told you what was wrong... Your words that I was your only hope kept ringing in my ears. What you didn't know was that I had a friend in Oklahoma City who had a laboratory where for decades he has been conducting experiments with this very disease and he's developed a serum that is a cure for your disease. But it's experimental and no insurance company will pay for it. And I knew it was too expensive. You couldn't afford it. But I just couldn't get off my mind that I was your only hope. And so I went and sold my practice. I sold the ranch I had down in the country I was going to retire to. I sold my house. I divested myself of all my investments. I cashed in my retirement account. I maxed out my lines of credit. I sold my vehicles. And once I had gotten everything together, I called my friend at the laboratory. And I told him how much I had. And I still didn't have enough. What you're not aware of is my son in Sepulpa has this very successful business and I called him and explained the dilemma. My son said, Dad, I I know how much your friend means to you and Dad, I've got the money. I can make up the difference. And I was so excited. Your friend, the doctor says, when I got up this morning, I rolled by and picked him up. We rolled down I-44. We went to Oklahoma City. I I put the money down. We got the cure. I'm headed back up the interstate. And I don't know when that 18-wheeler lost control in front of us. And I don't know when my truck began to roll over and over again. But I woke up on the side of the interstate, and I looked, and there was my boy lying in the middle of the road. I went over and held him, cradled him in my arms. The blood that you see on my shirt is his blood. The state trooper was so gracious, I explained to him that this cure had a very short shelf life and that I had to get it to you before it was too late. He said, we could investigate the accident later. He drove me here in his patrol car, sitting in your driveway right now, but I had to bring you the cure. And with that, your friend, the, the doctor, opens your hand and carefully places the cure in your hand. You look at that and you roll it in your fingers. You realize the price that has been paid to bring it to you. You realize that there's no way you could ever, ever repay what he has prayed for you. You sit up in the bed, you very gingerly, carefully raise that bottle up and you hold it up and then you throw it against the wall. It hits the wall and it shatters and it begins to run down the wall and mingle with the carpet in your bedroom. And then you point your finger into the face of your friend, the doctor, and you say to him, if I die, it's your fault. He said, Whoa. That's about the most foolish thing a person can do. Why would anybody be so cruel or heartless? Why would anybody be so foolish as to turn down the cure that cost this one everything? My friend, please listen. Please hear my heart. I'm pleading with you this morning. That is exactly what you do to God when you tell Him that the blood of His Son Jesus is not enough for you. That there has to be something more, something else, something better. I'm here this morning to tell you there is nothing else. There is nothing more. There is nothing better. Jesus Christ is the cure for what Satan would use to define you. For your sin, your past, your mistake, your failures. And I am here today to tell you that there is nothing else other than Jesus. But in Jesus, you can have the peace of God. You can know the purpose of God. And you can know the presence of God in your life and Satan can never take that away from you ever you say well what do I do how do I get this peace, this purpose this presence of God in my life to rise above my past I'm going to ask you if you would to bow your heads please heads bowed and eyes closed and if you'd give me permission it, uh, As simply as I know how, I'd like to explain to you how you could have that cure. How you can meet the one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you on a cross. Who became evil for you on a tree as he hung naked there. So that you could rise above your past. If you give me permission, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. It's a simple prayer, but it's an opportunity for you to open the door of your heart. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he's talking about the door of your heart. And he says, if you open the door, I will come in. And if right now, you would like to experience the presence of God in your life. Redefining who you are. Helping you understand how special you really are you just pray this prayer with me? Right where you are, pray in your heart, he'll hear you. Dear Jesus, I know that you're God's son. And I know that you died on the cross and gave everything for me. And right now, I surrender control of my life to you. And I invite you to come into my heart. Thank you, Jesus.